Welcome to another episode of the Data Revolution podcast. Today, my guest is Adam Sharman, who's from a company called Decipher, who are data specialists for manufacturing, and he's based in New Zealand. Welcome, Adam. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Kate. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I was really interested when we were chatting uh, about some of the data challenges that you face in manufacturing, because, you know, it's an area that not many people think about data being connected to. So tell us a bit about your organization and what, what they do with data. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's um it's a really interesting space. So um, our organization focuses on all things data for manufacturers. Um, so that's everything from setting up data architecture, visualization of business intelligence, um, and then analytics and insight um, off the, the back of it. Um, but we're really uh, su to support, uh, supporting um, advanced manufacturing, so digital manufacturing. Um, there's been a real shift um, in the last sort of five years um, to use data, um, particularly as manufacturers start to gather more data from PLCs, from their machines, and try and connect that to business systems. Um, we're finding a lot of manufacturers are starting to understand the power of data, um, but they're probably not using it uh, effectively yet for a uh, connected uh, decision ecosystem. And that's really what we want to be trying to support is not just uh, manufacturing um, data, but actually how does that connect to the overall business and how do you use that then to drive decision making at the business level? So... Many years ago, I used to work for, for GE, you know, and I had some involvement with manufacturing. And a lot of people don't understand how it used to be sort of big grey smokestacks, but now it's advanced <laughs> manufacturing. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there are still those big grey smokestacks um, <laughs> uh, about the place, but actually what we're seeing is that uh, even in those uh, more tra traditional heavy industries, um, the digitization of the manufacturing environment um, really sort of focuses on automation of process, automation of system. Um, and that could be to uh, reduce things like labor consumption. Um, so you're moving away from factory lines that have hundreds of people on it doing you know, repetitive tasks. Uh, and that can all be automated through robotics. Um, but then using the data that comes from those machines to actually drive um, accuracy, productivity, and reduce things like um, health and safety risk, quality risk, and ultimately um, increase um, productivity. Um, and what we're, what we're seeing is that a lot of organizations are starting to realize that they cannot just uh, replicate what they currently do or used to do more efficiently, um, but they actually use it as a strategic advantage. So it might be that they can start to rethink how they position themselves um, in the market, um, based on things like you know, increased um, what we call DIFOTs, so delivered in full on time, so making what you say you will when you say you will, um, uh, improved quality um, and, and improved um, productivity. So all of these digital tools are actually taking data from the manufacturing environments or from the tools themselves um, and then putting them into optimization models, so optimization of you know, production planning, for example, inventory planning, um, and then feeding them back into the machines so that the machines can um, be using things like video monitoring for quality, video monitoring for, for throughput. Well, it sounds to me like, you know, they're taking all of those old-fashioned Japanese production ideals like Kanban and stuff and sort of ramping them up on steroids. So what, what, are, what are some of the things that, that organisations are finding interesting in their data? Yeah, so um, it, it really, 
you're seeing a, a vast array of maturity when it comes to how people are using the data. So sometimes it's a case of, you know, we've got the spreadsheet that we've built that um, looks at things like um, on product time or overall equipment effectiveness. Um, and then they're replicating that. And that's sort of you know, standard reporting. Um, but then you can actually start to use some of that historical data um, to, to get into prediction models. So particularly things around predictive maintenance, for example. So, you know, if you're running a machine um, for a certain number of hours or a certain type of job, um, you can tell when that machine will need to be maintained or when it's likely to fail. Um, and the, the prediction models to take historical data for that machine and then uh, information from the manufacturers of, of that machine, how you're running it, what the, ma the maintenance history is of it, um, and then can actually predict when that machine will need to, to be maintained. Um, and that reduces things like um, unplanned downtime, which can be very cost costly for yeah. particularly in organizations. You know, every sort of half an hour, every minute even of, of unplanned downtime yeah. can be thousands, if not millions of dollars. Yeah, I remember those. Um, <laughs> so really what, what I'm interested in, though, is that sounds like pure play, old-fashioned old -fashioned machine learning. Um, mm. How is generative AI playing into that now, or is it? I think it's playing into everything, though. Yeah, it's it's playing into everything, and what what I'd actually um, what we're finding is that organisations are really just scratching the surface, particularly with generative AI. In the, in the last year, that's become you know the, the kind of buzzword, um, and some organisations are, are using generative AI um, in, in fairly simple ways. You know, they're using it to to draft policies, um, to draft um, plans. Um, but others are actually using it, if you, particularly if you layer it over the top of something like a, an open source GitHub model, for example, you can actually get some um, pretty amazing optimization models um, by feeding your data in directly from the machines into an optimization model um, that looks at uh, you know, where you might be able to drive efficiencies through your, your manufacturing system. Um, and that's something no, that... You, you're, you're, you're basically talking about connecting their OT, their operational technology, up with their IT sort of BI world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and this, this is where we've actually focused a lot of attention recently with organizations. So a lot of our conversations start with people saying, wouldn't it be great if my systems just talk to each other? <laughs> when they talk about systems, they talk about an ERP layer, you know, manufacturing execution layer. But now with advanced manufacturing, you're layering over the top of that direct data from machines. And at the moment, um, if you're running a sort of more traditional model, that data has to flow up through your, your IT stack. Um, and we're starting to build models now for, for clients and see this more often where this is actually going direct into, into a data warehouse or a data lake. Um, how, and how, is, how are you going with data quality for that? Because that's always been the argument against that very thing. Yeah, well, so the data quality that comes from machines is, is incredible. Um, and actually, we're seeing improved data quality because it hasn't had to go through. Taking the people multiple. out of the loop. Yeah, that's right. You take, take the people out of the equation for, for one, but also, you know, with um, with a unified semantic layer, you actually everything is referring to the same thing in the same way. Um, so actually, the, the translation of that becomes really simple um, up through the stack. Um, so actually, the data quality and potentially the so data quality, but data validation um, is actually becoming much easier um, as a result of it. And how are you? How are you managing metadata in that world? Yeah, so metadata it really depends on on the organisation and, and the maturity of the organisation. 
Um, so the metadata is uh, tried to build a, a unified semantic layer um, in the data warehouse. Um, and that's really kind of the starting point that we're seeing for most organizations. You know, a, a lot of organizations we go into have got, you know, they've got a, a spreadsheet over here that Bob maintains. You know, we've got a, a web app that, that Susan built three, three years ago. We've got ERP, MES, and, and all of them have their own um, semantic um, standards. Uh, and all of them refer even potentially to, to sensors by a different name. Yes, um, and so that's, that's why I asked about metadata. Yeah, well, that's right. So, so if you think about the manufacturing environment, the, the complication that we're seeing um, in, in the last few years is just the number of data points. You know, so you might have thousands of sensors running through a manufacturing system, and each one of those has its own you know, naming convention and it flows through to, to your IT stack. So right back to, to the start of, of designing the architecture, you've got to have uh, you know, a common naming convention across all of those sensors, which is a, a huge activity to retrofit. Um, so if an organization can start that early in the process of their automation journey, then um, you know, so much the better. But so this is a pro tip for anybody who's, who's thinking about this in the future. Name things com sensible common names. Don't give them all the <laughs> names. Absolutely. I'm and that doesn't just apply to manufacturing, right? I think the, 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 um, the, the complication for manufacturing is just the number of data points that you get through those, you know, the, the, those sensors. And the sensors are, are so cheap and easy to implement now, and you can layer them on top of you know, relatively old equipment and still get really good data out of them. So, so does that does that bring sort of um, networking architectures into play as, as to how you manage that? Are you sort of looking at edge style computing for that sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. So, it, 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 particularly when you're retrofitting equipment, um, if you're putting um, you know a PLC or a sensor on um, you know, more traditional equipment, you know, then you're looking at, at edge computing and um, uh, and it's. It's actually relatively straightforward to do now with the right architecture. Um, but, but this is, you know, the, the pro tip that you just mentioned, you know, start as early as possible. For, for most organizations, that's not the reality, particularly manufacturing. Yeah, yeah. Manufacturing is, is like the dark ages. I remember going into a, a manufacturing floor and there was an AS400 computer in the corner that had never been turned off in the 30 years <laughs> it had been there and it was still working. And yeah. that was the sophistication of their technology. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you think the capital investment required um, is huge for most organizations and, and for a lot of organizations um, they just don't have that, um, that capital available. And, and this is part of the challenge, I think, for manufacturing as a whole. Um, you know, it, it's very easy, particularly if you're a sort of medium-sized enterprise, is you, you look at um, videos on YouTube or, or LinkedIn of you know, Amazon's warehouses in China and it's you know, completely sort of lights out, there's robots everywhere, there's one person, this enormous warehouse, fully automated, and everybody thinks that that's where they need to get to. And you know, then the question is, well, how? <clears throat> and the, se the second question is, do you really need to? Most organizations probably don't need to get there yet. Uh, it might be a roadmap that they're on, uh, but actually there's a lot that they can do um, now. In, with, with relatively low cost when you look at things like um, edge sensors and, and PLCs. Or just um, re reduce their wastage. That's, absolutely. Reduce wastage, that's a really good thing. Yeah, that's right. But, but when you put those videos up of, of you know, the, the Amazon warehouse, a lot of people just it's sort of deer in the headlights, you know. It's like, how do we even get there when, when you know, we might be struggling today 
um, with cash flow or today with, um, with productivity or today to find the right people. Um, and, and often the challenge for organizations is to actually take a step back um, out of the day-to-day and say, look, what's the, what's the strategy around this? What, what's actually going to, to get us from here to here to here to here on, on a roadmap um, rather than feel like they have to go from where they are now to that, sort of, that full uh, Amazon setup? Well, you know, for, for every organisation, you don't need to be like Amazon because, you know, it might actually mean be better for an organisation to keep people more in the loop. Uh, Absolutely. You know? And this is you know, a conversation that we have all the time around what's the competitive advantage that you're trying to drive for your organisation? Because you know, for, for some organisations, it is cost. Um, so you have to manufacture as cheaply as possible. Um, and therefore, you know, things like you know, production efficiency are, are the number one goal. Um, but for others, it might actually be security. So, for example, we're, we're seeing um, a few organisations in New Zealand, actually the UK as well, where they're actually winning work from China uh, and other places because of um, the security that they can guarantee through their process. So they might not be the cheapest solution. Now, they still need to to manufacture um, as efficiently as possible. Um, But actually, their strategic advantage is security. It's not necessarily price. Hmm. Um, And so when you start to have that conversation, then that you you can then play forward uh, in terms of, of a data or technology strategy because that's got to be your number one goal as main sense of, of data security. And so outside all of the really big manufacturing organisations, you know, your Unilevers and GEs and stuff, a lot of those organisations won't have thought of those kinds of things because they're just doing business. They've always done business. They've always struggled to, you know, improve their margins and stuff, but they've never really taken a very scientific approach to it. So does data help lead that conversation? Yeah, and it really comes down to, to the, the culture of the organization. Um, uh, so you, if you've got people who are uh, mature in terms of their, their data capability or even their mindset towards a data-driven approach, um, then absolutely um, it will drive it. Um, but a lot of organizations are, are fairly immature when it comes to data capability and even how you use data. And most organizations would be um, absolutely on top of things like reporting, you know, historical reporting, um, but actually how do you use data to forecast, to scenario model, to predict? Um, that's a, a very big gap. In fact, there was so a... Most a, of them will be using Excel. Absolutely. Ridiculous yeah, yeah. Excel spreadsheets that are so complicated. <laughs> if you put something in, they'll just fall apart. Well, that's right. But you know what? I, I'm always amazed at how... Uh, what, what those Excel budgets can do. Um, yeah, yeah, they're amazing, but it's scary because they're so fragile. Scary because of the dependency they create, right? You, yeah. you, and, and it doesn't matter what else you do, if that's what the, the foundation of the model is, then um, it, it's a fairly precarious model. Um, we've but we've actually is- been moving a lot of our old Excel models. We had Excel models for predictive models that you press the button on them to recalculate and then you go away and leave the machine for two days while it did it. You know, and it was quite scary. Um, we've moved all of those into our cloud data platform, you know, where we do all the heavy lifting in the cloud, which makes a lot of sense, but they can still have an Excel front end on it so they feel at home. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, you know, we, we do a lot of our, our visualisation work in Power BI. You know, and there's amazing things you can do with, with Power BI that look very simple. 
Mm. Um, and sometimes people, you know, it, it's almost deceptive how simple the front end looks when you think about what's going on um, behind the scenes and, and the, you know, the translation that's required, the, you know, the transformation of data, the analysis of the data in order to be presented simply. Um, it's, it's pretty deceptive when you look at what is, you know, effectively a fairly simple dashboard on the face of it. Are those companies that are that you're building that sort of thing also realizing that they will need to beef up their recruitment and skills in the data space to feed? They buying a puppy, they've got to feed the puppy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. And there's there's really two ways of looking at that. So one is what what's the the specific technical resource that you need to build in, and that might be you know data architects, um, BAs, yeah, data scientists, um, and for, for a lot of organizations, that, that's going to be relevant for some, less, less so depending on their scale. But then you've got to look at what's the, what's the capability that's required across the organization, across all roles, and particularly those who are decision maker roles, you know, team leader level and above, where people are actually relying on, on data in order to make good business decisions. And now you're that... talking about data literacy, which is the okay. biggest elephant in the room worldwide. Yeah, well, that's right, and and that's so you know lifting up. A, I mean, there's so much in there. That's probably a whole other podcast on data yeah. literacy alone. But uh, you know, there's there's how do you interpret data? How, how do you you know read data? Um, but there's also how do you set up your organization um, as an ecosystem when it comes to decision making using data? You know, so if you're if, for example, we have conversations with HR departments, for example, and HR departments are actually getting really good when it comes to, to data analytics for workforce planning, for example. Mm. Um, at the moment, that's some, sometimes disconnected to things like the production plan um, and particularly things like investment in, in automation. So if you look at your investment in a machine, a lot of organizations will factor in purely what the depreciation of that machine is in order to, to determine its ROI. But when you start to factor the resourcing requirement in, you know, people can... Yeah, total cost of ownership. Total cost of ownership, exactly. And, and whilst it sounds like it should be a fairly simple um, concept, it, it requires an ecosystem-driven um, decision-making. And it means, that it means that it can't be financed driving it because they like that method because it's easy. And it's exactly. the way they've always done it. So it's a really it's a really interesting conversation inside an organization. I remember when I was at GE early this century, mm. um, but I was able to to say to my CEO based on data that an idea that he had wasn't good, and he looked at the data and said, "Yeah, you're right," and we dropped that idea. And that yeah. to me is a good data driven organization when you have that. Here is evidence. Don't do this, yes. and they accept yes. it. It's pretty rare. Yeah, well, that's right. And there's, there's multiple sort of maturity layers that people need to come up on there. So, you know, often we get really good buy-in when the data supports what people already thought. Mm. Um, the challenge becomes, you know, what happens when the data, uh, you know, as in, in that case, actually, you know, uh, goes against what was, what was previously thought. Um, and the maturity there is, you know, is letting go of, you know, previous assumption or previous ego even and going with the data you know sometimes what we find is as long as the data is reinforcing what people thought then they're happy to go with it but as soon as it goes against it they suddenly become you know the machine whisperer the only person that knows how to you know tune that piece of equipment and um you know the the, the old ways come back in 
Oh, I was just wondering, so what advice would you give to people who are in that situation where they've not presented data that reinforces management's beliefs? So how do you manage that? Yeah, well, I think that that's um, it's a, in some ways a classic change management. You know, people have to understand the context of, of the problem. Um, I think where you can put a dollar value on, um, on information or use uh, a metric that's going to resonate with that uh, particular audience, um, then that's really where you, know, you start to talk their language. So in the manufacturing world, if you're starting to talk about um, productivity, um, overall equipment effectiveness, um, you know, cost of quality failure, those sorts of things that have a, a, you know, an immediate impact on, on bottom line. Um, and then you'll start to, to get people's attention. Um, if you if you can't do that, then it's you know it's about providing the, the context for for that decision, um, and trusting, encouraging people to trust where that data has come from, um, and uh, you know the data sources, um, you know, how that data is collected. Um, but it, it's it's really going back to first principles of, of change management because for a lot of people, there's an identity tied up with the ability to make decisions based on you know their own experience. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the time, you know, if, if you're contradicting what what their uh, their decision would be, or well, their identity, re- really, their identity. That's right. It comes down to identity, right? So their identity in the past might have been that you know I know this process better than anybody else. Therefore, I am able to make really good decisions about this. Um, and you know, part of what we try and do is actually get in behind those individuals and say, you know, absolutely, you've got that experience, um, but now here's another tool that you can use to actually in- improve, you know, the decision making. You can stay the expert. You don't have to that's not right. be the expert. Yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly right. Yeah, and yeah, it's, it's about putting those people, you know, front and center and helping them do their job, um, you know, rather than try and challenge it in any way. Yeah, well, that that's the thing. Make make people look like heroes with the yeah. data, not against them. Yeah, but- that's right. And, and it's, it's something we talk about all the time. You know, particularly, it's not just in manufacturing, but but manufacturing probably feels this more more um, than other industries where they've been very labor intensive. Once you start to automate lines, you do start to eliminate the need for some uh, human um, human roles. Um, but we've seen really good success stories um, where organizations have retrained people actually to start to use the data to, you know, to do things like predictive maintenance that improve um, the production output um, overall, even if they've moved away from the more hands-on. So it's kind of interesting that we're not seeing necessarily a lot of job losses through digitization or through automation. It's just an augmentation of what those capabilities are. And the, the organizations that invest in those capabilities that help people through that, and critically, you know, to the point that you made, help people shift their identity through that process. Um, those are the organizations that are successful. And that is an excellent note to end on. Thank you so much, Adam. It's been really great chatting to you. And um, thank you, Adam, from Decipher. Oh, thank you so much, Kate. It's been great to chat. And that is it for another episode of the Data Revolution podcast. I'm Kate Crothers. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to give the show a nice review and a like on your podcast app of choice. See you next time.